Our reading today is from Hebrews 10, 1 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the, all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. So I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was together uh, with a pastor friend of mine, and he asked me the question, he said, have you seen the movie Manchester by the Sea? Uh, this is a movie that was nominated for Best Picture uh, in the most recent Oscars. The lead actor, Casey Affleck, won Best Actor. And he said, it is, uh, it is devastatingly depressing, um, but there's a sermon illustration in it, and so you should probably watch it. And so that's like giving a preacher, you know, it's like us getting a stock tip or something. We just go, we gotta, you gotta, you gotta find it, right? And so, uh, so one night I sat out to watch Manchester by the Sea and uh, I still haven't forgiven this guy. It was, he was right. It was the most depressing two hours of my life, I think. Um, but there is a great sermon uh, illustration in it. The story uh, that's told in Manchester by the Sea is of a troubled man named Lee. And Lee, uh, he, he learns that his brother has passed away uh, of heart failure, and he goes back to his hometown. It's evident that Lee, from the outset of the movie, is struggling. 
Uh, we see him in a bar fight. Uh, we see him uh, drinking himself into a stupor. We see him barely getting by in a job that he hates, fighting with his customers. And then he gets the call that his brother's passed away and that his brother has left him custody in his will over his only son. And in that moment, uh, we see Lee start to wrestle with his obligations to his brother, his desires uh, to help out this young man, this, this nephew of his, and also these deep, deep troubles uh, that he has. And then we see via flashback in Lee's life that the reason that, he's so strugg- that he struggles so deeply with this decision is that he's just absolutely wrecked by guilt over an event that happened many years ago in his life. That after a night of partying with his friends in his house, uh, with his three children sleeping upstairs and his wife downstairs, after, his kids le- after the, the friends left, after a night of partying, he gets up and he's cold, so he throws another log on the fire and he staggers out uh, to the convenience store to get a little more beer. And on his way home, he sees his house go up in flames. All three of his children die in the fire. His wife survives, but their marriage never really does. And we see in Lee a man who is absolutely powerless to move on from the guilt that hangs with him from that one event in his life. Because he can't deal with that event, because he can't deal with the guilt that sticks with him, he punishes himself, taking it out on himself. He punishes everyone else around him. He has no solution for the problem of guilt that afflicts his soul. The question for us today is, how do you deal with guilt? How do you deal with guilt? Now, there's not... There's not many of us, though each of us carries around our own bag of guilt. Few of us carry around that kind of guilt, right? The guilt that comes from a a tragedy like that. But many of us can look back at our lives and think about the people that we've wronged, the things that we've done that we can't believe we did, that we said we'd never do, the lines that we've crossed that we thought we never would. How do we process in our own souls and before God this problem of guilt You know, the world really uh, is at a loss to know how to deal with this. One of the great, uh, kind of an an ancient version of the same story of uh, Manchester by the Sea is in in Shakespeare's play Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth, after contributing to the murder of the king with her husband in that famous speech, remember the out-out damn spot, if you remember anything from whatever, ninth grade English that you read that play, um, right at, right at, she, she's giving that speech, trying to wash away the guilt that she feels, and she pours her heart out to this doctor, And he says, this disease is beyond my practice. This disease, this this stain of guilt is beyond my practice. It's beyond my ability to heal it. And if you were to go and to ask psychologists, to ask psychiatrists, to ask doctors and so-called experts in our world, how do I deal with guilt? Most of them would still say, it's kind of beyond my ability to help you. The best our culture offers is some, some version of, you need to learn how to forgive yourself. Right, that we've reduced guilt down to a purely psychological condition. It's purely subjective. We need to learn how to get past it. You need to learn how to have grace for yourself and forgive yourself. But the scriptures paint a different picture. That guilt isn't primarily a subjective experience. That guilt isn't primarily just something we feel, but that it's a real moral problem. Right, that guilt is objectively a problem between us and God that we have to deal with, right? That the problem is between us and God before it's within ourselves. And now that objective problem of guilt does worm its way into our souls. It does does fracture us and it afflicts our hearts. 
But if we don't deal with the, the fundamental issue of guilt, we'll never be able to have enough grace for ourselves until we've figured out how to live with God with our guilt. And so Israel had an elaborate system for dealing with guilt that was given to them by God that seemed strange or even barbaric to us. This system of sacrifices that at the very center of Israel's life with God, at the very heart of the way that they thought of themselves living with God, was the temple. Right there in the center of their holy city, Jerusalem, was the temple. And day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade, there in that temple, the priests made sacrifices to God. Right? If, we, if you or I were to walk into the temple, if we were to somehow get in our DeLorean and go back uh, to Jerusalem of Israel's day, and we were to be there in the temple, it would not immediately stand out to us as a place of worship. Right? It would, now, it was beautiful. Right? It was simple, but there were elements of it that were beautiful, that were golden, that would have, that would have captured the imagination and the heart. But honestly, it was less like the scene of a European cathedral and more like the scene that we would expect to find at a slaughterhouse, right? The sheer amount of blood, the sheer screaming of animals, the, 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 the priests were as much butchers as they were worship leaders, right? They would go about their daily work literally for much of the day just covered in blood. The, the, the blood sacrifice was such a key part of Israel's faith of Israel's life with God, that it would seem utterly bizarre to us if we were to walk in and live in the midst of that. So what gives? Why was Israel given? Right, This isn't something that they just made up on their own. This was a system given to them by God. What was it for? Well, scholars tell us that there are really two things that are going on in the sacrifices of Israel. There's two main types of sacrifices. One type of sacrifices that happened in Israel was, uh, were symbolic of the fact that Israel owed its life to God and that they belonged to God by right. So some of these offerings were called fellowship offerings or thank offerings. Some of them were as simple as a farmer bringing his wheat before the altar and waving it before God, just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for a good harvest. Thank you for the way that you take care of me. I recognize that all of my crops are yours, so here I am just waving it before you to acknowledge that I belong to you. Some of them would be a sacrifice of the herd. But all of these offerings, these thank offerings or fellowship offerings, were just a symbol that we were made for God, that we owe our whole lives to God, and that we're made for fellowship with him. And then there was another type of sacrifice that acknowledged that that fundamental unity that we were made for with God has been broken by sin. That because of sin, we can't just walk into God's presence and live with him in peace and unity that a sacrifice has to be made to atone for sin. The way that Paul puts it is that the wages of sin is death, right? The punishment for sin is death. It's the giving of a life. And so Israel had this daily practice of giving a life in their place to cover over their sin, to essentially say, God, please accept the life of this sheep, the life of this goat, the life of this whatever it was, on behalf of me, in place of taking my life. Uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 17 puts it this way. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That sin always requires punishment. 
it always requires the giving of a life. You know, that's something um, that I think we know instinctively, right? That our, that our world, when we, when we sin, when we fall short, uh, when we wrong others, we have this desire to make amends. We have this desire to try to make it right, to try to sacrifice, to try to work hard enough to get in someone's good graces, right? I know well in my own life when I've sinned, when, I've, when, I, when I know that I've disobeyed God, I quickly start to figure out ways to make it up to him. God, I promise I won't miss church for a week. I promise, uh, I promise I'll do more good things than bad. I promise I'll be nice to my kids. I promise I'll do all these wonderful things, right? There's something instinctively just in the way that our souls work through life that we try to make our way back to God through sacrifice. We try to punish ourselves sometimes to get back right with God. There's this incredibly heartbreaking scene in Manchester by the Sea uh, where the cops uh, tell Lee, this man, after the death of his family, he confesses to them everything. He said, we were drinking and we were drugging, we were doing all this stuff, and then I left and my kids, you know, everything happened. And he expects them, as, as I think we mo most of us would, to arrest him. And the cops say, oh, well, you know what? You haven't done anything that a lot of other people haven't done. You're free to go. And in that moment, uh, he lunges for the cop's gun and grabs it and tries to take his own life. He's stopped. But there's something in him that just knows he's got to pay. He's done something so wrong that he can't live with himself, and he's got to take it out on himself. Right? That sin does require the giving of a life at that level. And the sacrificial system uh, was a stand-in for that, a stand-in for, for Israel losing their own life because of their sin. And a reminder, you know, the, the author of Hebrews in the passage that we read tells us that the, the sacrificial system was always meant to point beyond itself, right? The, the, the language that the author uses is that it was a shadow, that it was a shadow that was meant to point beyond itself to the substance, that it was meant to point ahead to Jesus, to lead Israel to understand their need for a sacrifice, their need for a mediator between them and God. How did the sacrifice remind Israel uh, of their need for God? Well, first it reminded them of, their, of the gravity of their sin. If you look at chapter 10, verse 3 that was just read, it said, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. There's a reminder. Every time they saw the animal sacrifice, they would have rem remembered why that sacrifice was necessary. Right, because the fact is that some of us are like Lee, right? We carry around in our souls and just even down just in the core of us, an awareness of our guilt. We just can't get past it. But there's others of us that, quite frankly, give very little thought to our guilt, right? We go through our days, we go through our weeks, we go through our lives, and rarely do we think, you know what, I'm a sinner that's wrong to holy God, and I am guilty, right? Some of us just never think of it. We think that we've got a, we're okay, we've got an agreement with God, that God's overlooked the bad in our lives, we've done more good than bad, so we just, we, we breeze past it. And the sacrifices never allowed Israel to breeze past their sin. If you were in Jerusalem and were walking past the temple and you heard the animals cry out and you saw the blood and you remembered it all and you smelled the smoke, you would think, what's going on in there? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm a sinner in need of a sacrifice to cover my sin, right? It would have been a reminder of their need before God every time. Furthermore, it would have been a reminder uh, for them of their need of forgiveness, right? That they do require a mediator. Something has to happen between them and God. 
but they can't just waltz into God's presence, that it takes a sacrifice. And it would have or should have pointed them beyond the sacrifice. You know, I don't think you could have lived in that system seeing animal after animal sacrificed day after day, year after year, and thought to yourself, yeah, no, this seems like a permanent solution. Right? I don't think you could have seen that and lived through it and thought, oh, great, God's taking care of it. He's just given us a bunch of goats and we'll just sacrifice them forever um, to atone for our sin. Right? It was always, I believe, meant to point Israel beyond it, to say, you know what, this, this system is only, it's only a stopgap. It's only, it's only a placeholder for the sacrifice that we know is needed. That, yeah, God's accepting them, and he's overlooking and passing over our sin, but someday these sins are going to have to get dealt with, with something more substantive uh, than the death of, you know, a petting zoo. It's going to take something more than this. He uses the language of a shadow. You know, if you think about a shadow, Plato has this great image uh, Plato's cave. It's one of, uh, one of Plato's great works where he imagines a group of men and women who've lived their entire life chained up in a cave with a fire behind them and all they ever see are shadows on a wall. And year after year, if all you ever saw were the shadows, eventually you would start to think that that's all that there was. That all that there is is shadow and there's no substance. There's no, nothing you can touch and feel and it's real. There's only shadow. And so one of the great tragedies uh, of the Bible as the Old Testament moves towards the new as Jesus comes is the failure of Israel to see the substance when it came. To say, no, 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 that's not real. All there are are shadows. There's the law and the temple and the sacrifices. That's all we need. When in reality, uh, they should have looked beyond that to Jesus. Really, their own scriptures, our own scriptures, point us beyond it. Before God gave the temple and before he gave the sacrificial system, uh, there are stories that point towards the need of another sacrifice. One of, uh, one of maybe the most vivid of these is the famous story in Genesis 22, where Abraham is asked to take Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. You remember that story? It's a, it's a strange story. But God comes to, to his person, uh, his covenant partner, Abraham, and he says, take your son, take him up to the mountain, I'm going to have you make an offering to me. And that offering is going to be your beloved child, Isaac. And they get up to the, to the mountain, and right before Abraham's about to lower the knife to kill Isaac, an angel stops him. He stops him from sacrificing his son, and then over there in the, in the brush, they see a ram stuck by his horn. He says, take that, let, let that be the sacrifice. And Genesis 22 puts it this way. He says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided that God himself will make the sacrifice God himself will be the one who provides the sacrifice to make us right with God. Have you learned yet that no amount of sacrificing can make you right with God? I had a, in, a, in, a, in an earlier part of my life, I coached football uh, at, a, at a high school in Memphis. And I remember uh, a kid, a decent football player, uh, went away to a youth camp and came back. And it was a good, it was a junior year, loved football as where all of his friends were. It was kind of a, a big part of his life. And he came back from that youth, youth retreat and said, Coach, uh, I think I need to quit football. And I said, really? Why? I mean, I knew this kid well. I knew he was a, he was a Christian. He, he loved the Lord, was, enjoyed football. And he said, well, the speaker at this youth camp told us that we need to lay our Isaac down, right? Whatever that thing is in your life that matters most, whatever that thing is in your life that you think you can't live without, God wants you to lay it at his altar. 
And so he said, well, for me, that's football, and I need to quit it. Right now, I've been a youth pastor. <laughs> I've heard that talk a hundred times. I've, I've probably given it, right? And there's, some, there's something true about it, right, that God does at some level demand to have the primacy in our lives. He demands that nothing come above him, that we love nothing more than him, that none of the good things that he's given us supplant him, that we have no idols. But you can never sacrifice enough. You can never lay down enough of your good things. You can never walk away from enough to earn your way before God. Right? There's nothing that you can lay down before him that he's going to take as a sacrifice and say, oh, wow, Johnny, you loved me more than football? Well, now I love you. No, that's an empty path to making yourself right with God. No part of your life that you can lay down to him can do it. On the mountain, God has to provide the sacrifice. Right? You have, by your sin, by my sin, by my idolatry and yours, We've infinitely offended a holy God. And only an infinitely valuable sacrifice will suffice to get us back with him. And so that's why Jesus uh, had to lay down his life. That's why the sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest, alone could make us right with God. You know, that's the author of Hebrews. This is one of his favorite themes. And it seems to him like Jesus... Kind of, he repl Jesus becomes the high priest. He's the one who makes the sacrifice. Jesus becomes the lamb. He's the one who is sacrificed. Jesus becomes the temple itself. Jesus is the place where God and humanity come back together in fellowship. That all of this stuff gives way to Jesus. That's why we no longer make sacrifices. That's why we no longer go on pilgrimages to a temple. It's that we now have all of that in Jesus himself. I love the way he puts it. In verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The other priests stand continually. They stand before God, making sacrifice after sacrifice. Jesus makes one sacrifice and then sits down because he's got no more work left to do He's done all the work that there is to be done. The sacrifice is made. And so, uh, we shouldn't look for any other sacrifice to make us right with God. Now, this, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people have rightly pointed, uh, and this is it's probably worth mentioning, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, uh, this is one of the things that underlies the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, right? That Jesus is sacrificed again and again and again and again every time we come to the table. And that somehow we have to have that sacrifice each week to have life with God? Well, and the author of Hebrews says, no, that's not the case, right? It was one sacrifice made once and then applied over and over again that we, we partake of over and again, but there's only one sacrifice. And yet there's plenty of ways that, that apart from that, that we do make new sacrifices. Every time we swear to God that we're going to try harder and be better, Every time we sin and then promise to God that he ought to take us back in because we can do more and we can be better. That's us making another sacrifice before God, standing again to try to make a sacrifice instead of resting in the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, what does this mean for us? You know, I love the way that, that the author ends this, this reading. In the final verses, 19 uh, through 25, the last part we read, 
Because he, he draws attention basically to in light of this, in light of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus, we can live. And he uses uh, the, the, the three virtues that Paul uses in other places. But he basically, when applying it to us, he says you can live in faith, hope, and love as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus. You can, reply, you can, you can live out a life of faith, hope, and love. First, faith in verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Right, you can live a life with God in full faith without an afflicted conscience. We can, what he says, he calls it, he said we can draw near to God through faith. We can live a life with God. You know, this is uh, the ultimate prize that, God, that Jesus won for us on the cross is the ability to live in fellowship and communion with God that we can draw near to God. He uses the image of it's like a door has been opened through a curtain, uh, which is the flesh of Jesus, right? That on the cross, a door is opened so that we can walk into a mansion that we can live with God in, right? It's a beautiful image. Now, the cross, we should celebrate the cross. We should, we should treasure the cross. We should be grateful for the cross. But we should also pass through and enter into this life with God that he's called us to, enter into this fullness of our life with God, uh, and, and really partake of it with him. Live a life before him in prayer. Cultivate a life of intimacy with him. Know what it means like to live with God. It's amazing the life, the spiritual life with God you can have when you once and for all settle the question of your acceptableness, of whether or not you're, you're worthy of it, of whether or not God wants you, right? Because that's settled on the cross. God has dealt with that. And now you don't have to second guess yourself. You don't have to beat yourself up about it. You don't have to worry about, well, do I, I've sinned a lot this week. Does God want to hear from me? Should I bother praying? Because God's answered that question. He views you as holy and acceptable and loved in Jesus. So you can draw near to him in faith. It nurtures our hope. In verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Right, we can have hope that the God who loved us enough to give his own son for us on the cross is going to finish what he starts in us. He's going to continue to remake us more and more in his image. We have hope. I love the way he puts it uh, earlier in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a weird sentence. Think about it. He has perfected for all time, so it's done. You, you, you have been perfected and made holy. Those same people, he is sanctifying, right? So he's declared that we are holy, that if you are in Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how you sin, it doesn't matter all the mess in your heart and in your life. He looks at you and says, you are holy. You are set apart. You are loved. You are just as holy now as you will be in glory before God. And he will sanctify you. Right? That means that he will make you in actuality what he's already declared you to be. Right? He's already looked over you and said, you're a saint, you're holy, you're spotless, and I'm not going to finish my work in you until you're actually holy, until you're actually loving, until you actually start to move in love towards the people around you and in love and worship and obedience to me. Right? The hope that we have as Christians is that one day we will be who God already sees us as. That he will make us into who he's called us to be. Right now, most of us spend most of our Christian life flipping that over. 
right? That once I'm holy, God will accept me. Once I'm sanctified, God will justify me. And God says, no, no, no. I've called you holy, and now I'll make you holy. And so we have that hope. And then finally, calling us to faith, calling us to hope, he calls us to love in verse 24. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for you promised us faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I love the order there. Stir one another up to love, love towards God, love towards our neighbors. And then the good works, the good life that flows out of that, a life of love towards our neighbor. You know, this is, this is really vividly pictured uh, in that movie, Manchester by the Sea. Lee, because of his affliction of guilt, is unable to love, right? It paralyzes him when he's given the opportunity to love, when he's given the opportunity to reach out and to adopt his nephew. He's paralyzed, and he ultimately walks away, unable, because of his own guilt, to move out in love, right? And we all, we all beat ourselves up. We all handle this, you know, who am I? Who am I to be used by God? Who am I to, to, be, to be used significantly in the life of my community or my neighbors? I can't do that. I'm dirty. I'm tainted. I'm guilty. But again, once you deal with the question of your guilt, once you trust the cross to deal with that, you can put it behind you and then move out towards the community that God's placed you in in love, knowing that, no, you're not. Yes, you're guilty before God, like all of humanity, like your neighbors themselves, but you're washed by the blood. You're set free from a guilty conscience. You're empowered and able to give your life away in love towards others. Jesus uh, has become our sacrifice, our high priest, and our temple. When we wonder how we stand before God, we wonder how we could ever use somebody like us, we wonder how we could even look up to him in prayer because of our shame, we need only look to Jesus who makes the way. Let's pray.